0: Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the February investment edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to Heritage Financial's Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets and investment universe right now. We're recording this on the afternoon of February 1st, after the Fed decided and announced that it was raising rates by a quarter percent or 25 basis points. And we saw the market's reaction, which was initially favorable, Bob. The markets were negative and then turned positive and are ending the day positive. So by all accounts, initially, the market had a favorable response. Does that matter to you, or is it, you know, one day or one half day, and let's wait and see? More of the latter. It's it, it's it's one day, a bit of a roller
1: coaster of a day. It looks like the, the Dow's ending about flat. Um, NASDAQ up 2%, S&P up 1%, looking at U.S. markets. Um, so, yeah, th- there was... It, it was widely expected that the Fed was going to raise rates by 25 basis points, which is what they did. Um, and Powell's press conference, um, he was friendly. He, he Friendly to the markets, you mean? Friend, yes, friendly to the markets. Uh, I think what Markets liked hearing was that he recognized that inflation is slowing. He's seeing that impacts of policy changes um, are slowing inflation, and that, that's been the big battle. As opposed to head in the sand and upward, we're we're still out and we have a long ways to go. It's more like we're, we're we're making good progress here. A couple more rate hikes, I think that those those were his words. Um, so you know maybe two more twenty five basis point rate hikes and we're done. Uh, so just seeing that that Fed raising rates is slowing inflation as intended. They're recognizing it. I guess it made markets happy a
0: little bit. So different than the Jackson Hole speech that you and I talked about from last summer where basically, we kind of characterized it as he was pretty hawkish and it was a verbal rate hike. And you're saying this time around, he he struck a different tone.
1: The the Jackson Hole, I think, was intentional. Yep. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna spook people and, you know, and used pain. I'm gonna cause pain and wanted to shake things up. I, I don't know that um, he was trying to be, as they would call it, dovish and push markets up, to be honest, he's probably not pleased with markets being up after him speaking. I think in general, he probably wants a flat response. And why would that? Why would that be, Bob? Well, just in general, he doesn't want to be moving markets. But if he does right now, he is trying to be more restrictive. He's trying to slow things down, tighten financial conditions is a term. Um, So tightening financial conditions is higher interest rates, is lower money supply, is lower stock prices, is lower home prices. That's what the
0: Fed's trying to do. They're trying to tighten monetary conditions. So, so Bob, Uh, just sorry. I understand the first two as to why they would be tighter financial conditions. Why would stock market prices being higher or home prices being higher go against the tighter monetary policy that they're pursuing? The wealth effect.
1: Okay. So if your house is worth more, your portfolio is worth more. Uh, research shows you're more inclined to spend money. And same with your portfolio, obviously.
0: Yep. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted you there. Please go on.
1: They're in a tightening mode and seeing markets go up, that's kind
0: of pushing in the opposite
1: direction. That's loosening financial conditions.
0: Since the last time we talked, the market had a strong January. And it wasn't only January. I don't know if we've how much we've talked about this, but You know, the market's had a strong run really since toward the end of October. And I think not just U.S. equities, international equities, fixed income, doing better. You know, there's a possibility, there's a debate, you know, are we in a new bull market? Did the market bottom out in October or are we retesting the lows? But what are the numbers, Bob, showing you that uh, the market's done since that so far October low that continued well into a strong January?
1: Yeah, the the markets um, have been strong at uh, looking at trailing three month returns. The US market is up 5.6%. The world ex US, so this is developed international, is up 19.88%. And emerging markets are up 22.16%. So just rounding those US six, developed international 19, and emerging markets 22. So there's been some really strong returns seen overseas um, in the last three months. So that, that, that's that been really good to see.
0: That has been good to see. I think it's important to get balance in global equity returns. Why do you see that happening? What do you think is the case for the international outperformance lately? I think um, part of it's valuation
1: driven, but okay. we went into 2022, you know, so rewinding 13 months or so. Um, with some areas of the US market in particular that were quite expensive, like tech that we've been talking about, but overseas markets were fairly valued, then everything sells off and you end up with foreign markets being cheap compared to historical averages, whereas US market is more average-ish. Um, so then, you know, as things normalize, they have more room to run up to to recoup the the declines from 2022.
0: And China reopening, does that impact anything in your mind, the emerging markets?
1: China's definitely a a big part of that story. Um, China's done um, quite well. I think we talked about that like one or two months ago. Yeah, China reopening and that that market got really cheap. We talked about that, I think, in October where it got down to book value, which is just putting no um, value on the operations of the business, businesses, companies, and um, seen really good returns out of China since then.
0: In our 2023 Market Outlook podcast with your colleague, Michael Waldron, we did talk about the fact that the emerging markets are a source of potentially higher returns than the US and developed international, but also higher volatility. So you do need to put a governor on them in uh, building a portfolio. Developed international is doing quite well. Do you need to put as much of a governor on your developed international exposure or uh, do they have volatility more in line with the U.S. market? Closer
1: to in line with the U.S. market, um, you are taking currency risk there. Um, so, as a U.S. investor, dollar-based investor, um, currency risk is really the the main difference for added risk. But otherwise, like you're looking at developed, um, comp- you know, established companies in like in Europe. Like, if you're looking at like a BMW versus a Ford, which company has more risk? They're both large automakers in established
0: countries. Got it. In terms of bonds, Bob, what are you seeing in the fixed income markets?
1: Uh, Yeah, fixed income markets look good. Um, Yields rose several um, hundred basis points last year. So we're getting attractive yields in municipal bonds, um, treasury bonds, some the securitized market um, yields are good. So um, in addition to seeing strong yields, um, which we acted on by increasing our bond allocation late last year, yields have started to come down a little bit. As other investors have also said, oh, you know, these are attractive yields. So when yields are going down, that means the price is going up. So year to date, um, bond investors are looking at returns around three to 4%. So total in a month. So make, uh, you know, three to 4% in bonds in the month of January has has been good to see.
0: Quite a nice reversal from their worst year ever last year. Yes, there's catching up to do. They do have catching up to do. Is the yield curve still inverted? Very much so. Explain that. And then I do have a question on that because, you, you know, with your ability to get a higher yield in, in shorter term instruments, I guess I'll just ask the question, why would anybody go out longer on the curve and not just lock in the two-year rates? Yeah.
1: So I'll just read off some yields looking at the yield curve. Um, the high point when looking at you know seven different points on it is the, the six month. Uh, six month Treasury bill yields four point seven seven percent. The two year is four oh nine, and the ten year is three forty one. So four seventy seven for a six month and three forty one for a ten year. So that's one point three six percent lower in yield for the ten year. W- what the market is doing is. It, it takes in consideration where the Fed funds rate will be over time and the, the fact that the rates that we have today on the short end from the Fed um, raising rates aren't going to be there forever. That's why you have a higher yield on the short term, because that's basically what you're getting, at the, the current short rate. But long term, markets are expecting the Fed to eventually cut. Got it. So you could sit in a money market right now and get that, you know, 4% yield, but um, that yield will be going down. So that, that's kind of the initial read of it. That's together. the
0: initial y- read of why it's inverted. Of Yeah, of, of just
1: explaining what it is, but then thinking a little bit more, okay, so now where do you want to be positioned on it? When you see an inverted yield curve, um, it's, it's saying you know, the Fed will be cutting rates, so they're temporarily elevated. Well, what will change course? Why, why aren't rates going to stay at this level forever? And it's because the Fed's going to cut rates why will the fed cut rates well they have a dual mandate and that is um, stable employment and uh, price stability so um, when they're fighting price stability inflation which is what they're doing now that leads to elevated rates when they think that the concern is more on the employment side and the unemployment goes up that's when they start cutting rates when you see an inverted yield curve like this is saying that a fed rate cut is coming And that typically lines up with a recession. So this is how economic cycles work, where you get too hot, Fed hikes rates, and hiking rates, they invert the yield curve, then unemployment shoots up as you hit a recession, and they cut rates. When they cut rates, um, you you typically will see more of a parallel shift in the curve. Well, I guess not, not a perfectly parallel shift, but you will see rates move across the board. Okay. So you will see um, rates move down across the board. Yeah, rates move down across the board. And um, the the way the the math of bonds works is that the duration is higher in longer-term bonds. So like a a 0.5% reduction in in the yield of a 10-year treasury is a much higher increase in price than a 0.5% change on a six-month T-bill. So you'll get... um, better price returns on long-term bonds when the fed cuts rates
0: got it no that's a great answer it's a long answer but it's a perfect answer because i followed it (laughs) a and b it made a lot of sense thank you bob so basically you're positioning a portfolio if you added duration recently which we did for eventual rate decreases, which will help prices on longer-term bonds more than shorter-term bonds, even though the yield on the shorter-term ones right now is uh, much higher That's or right. higher, I guess. Okay. Is that what they also call reinvestment rate risk on the shorter side? Yes. Like, sure. You can get those yields right now, but then what are you going to do six months to two years from now? In that instance, would, would reinvestment rate risk fears push you towards owning something a little bit more long-term? Yes. The the
1: two main risks that people speak about, us included with fixed income, are credit risk and rate risk. So credit risk, risk of default. Rate risk, you know, um, the relationship of um, changes in interest rates. Reinvestment risk is a third risk that's not as commonly talked about that that you brought up. So reinvestment risk is as a bond investor bonds mature, you're going to get your cash back. Bonds pay dividends, you're going to get cash. You're constantly getting cash flow. What yield are you going to get on it? I know what the yields are today, but you don't know what the yields will be in the future. So in the future, if yields are lower, that's a a risk to the downside. So by buying longer term bonds, you're taking less reinvestment risk. And when yields are attractive, when they're at what I'd consider acceptable levels, um, we're more inclined to take more of that term risk to, to reduce the reinvestment risk. So that we don't get stuck in a world where bonds are yielding one and two percent again, and that that's gets hard to deliver returns for clients who want to live off a portfolio that's returning six or seven percent when bonds are only going to give you one. So um, when we can get, you know, three and a half to four just out of Treasuries, and then with um, spread product get um, sixes, sevens, in the yield, uh, we're looking to take it right now.
0: So so far this year, asset classes, traditional asset classes. U.S. stocks, international stocks, bonds doing well. And really, you shared over the last three months uh, how well global stocks are doing. We talked about something like this, I think, over the summer when there was concern that maybe we we had a a rally and that the market was getting, quote-unquote, ahead of itself. Do you have any fears that that is happening right now?
1: A a little bit. Um, Something... Yeah, I think worth bringing up um, this morning. The uh, there's a jobs report out. Um, the um, name is the JOLTS, uh, Job Opening Labor Turnover Survey. The, the number of job openings. So think of like help wanted signs out on the internet. You know, for job openings, it was up to 11 million, and th- that was a surprise to the upside of big numbers. It, it had been on the decline, and then it just jumped back up. So there's a lot of job openings. What Powell talks about is um, the ratio of job openings to people looking for work. And that ratio right now is about 1.9. So for every one person who's unemployed and looking for work, there's 1.9 jobs. Hmm. So when you think about inflation, um, and what you'd want in a balanced economy, you'd, you'd want more like a one-to-one ratio, like, oh, that'd be perfect. There's one person looking for work and there's one job for that person. So when you have a, a 1.9 to one ratio, um, what happens is kind of the, the negotiating power ends up um, with the employee and you get wage growth um, that can push inflation. So it's tough for companies to hire then they have to raise wages. When you raise wages, Um, that is is an inflationary action. Um, So that's something that um, the Fed's looking at closely. That's a headwind for them, bringing inflation back down to 2% when you have 11 million uh, job openings.
0: So bringing it back to your concern, the market may be getting ahead of itself if the Fed decides to respond more aggressively to a stubbornly attractive job market.
1: Yeah, Powell said in the press conference that there's imbalance in uh, the jobs market. So w- when you think these things through, sometimes they're a bit of a head scratcher. Just to you know get comfortable with it, but they they want that. Like if he could make those 11 million jobs turn into 8 million, he probably would. And that's more balanced. That makes you know from an academic standpoint, you know looking at numbers, that makes them happy. But what does that mean? That just made 3 million jobs go away. And how do you make 3 million jobs go away? Well, you, you slow down company growth, um, or you put companies out of business. And that gets to very real consequences. And you, know, you take their tools of raising interest rates and tightening financial conditions and demand destruction, things like that. That's, that's your economic pain scenario, where you make 3 million jobs go away, and then they're happy.
0: And that's the scenario they, they claim and everybody hopes that they're trying to avoid, right? So engineering the soft landing instead of the recession and um, taking pain to the labor market.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's hard to, um, yeah, hard to do. It's just hard
0: to see that happening in your eyes because of how stubbornly, again, attractive the, the jobs market is.
1: And it's, it's just how connected they are. Like, how do you make 3 million jobs go away? Pretty much a lot of companies do have to go out of business. How is that not painful? I feel like that, that is the, the big issue um, that's, that's yet to be resolved. And it, it was a little um, disappointing to see that number come in this morning, how it came in high. It's like, oh, we're moving in the right direction. Like housing prices are down five months in a row. That's great to see from an inflationary standpoint. Um, it's deflationary. Uh, but this jobs market is, is stubbornly strong.
0: So that's the big risk that you see out there for investors in the short term, that the job market does not change course and the Fed needs to maintain its hawkish stance for longer, which obviously the market would not react favorably to. Correct. That makes a lot of sense. And so something else that has been raised as a concern and a fear for 2023 by investors and people we talk with is this debt ceiling situation. And I know we've shared some information on it internally. We've shared some information with our clients. The debt ceiling is this uh, goofy construct that seems to come back and haunt us politically every few years. What are your thoughts on the risk to investors of this debt ceiling debate? Risk is low. It's it's just a, a
1: frustrating exercise where politicians um, use the debt ceiling. It's like, you know, a red button that they can push that would cause some real destruction in financial markets that that they um, won't, but will threaten. Um, So I think it just is going to get a lot of headlines, but eventually they'll raise the debt ceiling as they should, and Treasury won't default. Because you you, you play it out, the consequences of the Treasury defaulting on the debt, it's just, it's it, it's it's nonsense. It's way too severe. So I, just I don't
0: explain. I mean, technically, Treasury defaulting on its debt. Wh- what does that mean to everyday people? Like, how would what would that look like?
1: So I mean, just I mean, first mechanically, like, what what does it mean? It's like there are Treasury bonds outstanding, ranging in maturity from bills that mature tomorrow to thirty-year bonds and interest payments. Um, so it, it means that they're not paying back the principal on Treasuries that mature. They're not paying the interest. Uh, they're not paying federal workers. Um, it's, it's all of those. And um, so to connect it to like reality, um, the Social Security Trust Fund is held in treasury debt. So if you, you want the Social Security Trust Fund just to go to zero? <laughs> That's like, You start playing things out like that, like all money markets are very heavily, like cash reserves are in treasury debt. Like,
0: so you become a deadbeat borrower, basically. Yeah. You're the you're the company that or the person that's not making their credit card payments or not making their bond payments, and people just can't get what they loaned back from you. And also, you talked about the uh, the consequences to uh, other things like you know paying workers and and social security payments. Right. So obviously, that would be catastrophic for the uh, economy we have a tremendous benefit from being a world reserve currency and just people, you know, uh, investing in our treasury market. So you see it as low risk that that would ever happen. I tend to agree. Doesn't mean low risk from short-term volatility, right? As we kind of muddle through this. Yes,
1: uh, definitely, uh, um, short-term volatility risk, uh, on, on two fronts, one one rational and one irrational. Markets move based on emotion and sentiment. And that type of stuff can, you know, maybe you don't need to put it through a calculator to change the intrinsic value in stock prices, but, you know, people get spooked and prices can go down. So, um, but that's, I chalk that up to noise and just uh, something that investors are are best ignoring as much as they can.
0: Just muddle through. And that tends to be a lot closer to what in this go-around would be considered the June deadline that they've come up with. Historically, we have months before we need to worry about the the volatility and the nervousness increasing. Right. So your message to investors is ignore the debt ceiling debate.
1: Yeah, really with politics and anything relating to politics and financial markets, it's just disconnected too. I'm just... Uh, there's just so much nonsense in, in Washington, and uh, don't listen to that and think about your portfolio at the same time.
0: That's probably the best advice we could give today. <laughs> Bob, what's going on in the private markets? We don't talk about it a lot, but we do invest for clients selectively in private equity, private credit, private real estate. A lot of those publicly traded markets last year struggled. We've talked about that ad nauseum. How did the private markets do in 2022? When do you have concerns there or are, are these good opportunities that are being created now in this environment? What Any thoughts on private investing?
1: Yeah, with private equity, um, we've seen markdowns in prices, which um, we're actually, um, I almost want to say pleased to see. It, it just it means they're they're being priced fairly. So, you know, stocks go down broadly of every flavor and color in 2022 and private equity, private business valuations um, got marked down too. So no big surprise there. What we have not seen is much of a markdown in private real estate. And um, that gets a little tricky because when you think about the real estate market, like residential real estate, which is not what we own single family homes, but like the value of your home probably went up last year so with inflation being high real estate um has gone up um but uh
0: probably went up last year because there were good months before you mentioned the the five in a row down months that bled into this year right so okay
1: yeah if you're like looking at monthly markings if you have them then yeah you probably went up and then down but you're still up on the whole. but a, a challenge that um the real estate market in general real estate investors which it's more like commercial real estate private real estate are going to have to deal with is um, interest rates at current levels so we look at um, treasury yields in in the fours um, spread product so like if you're making a loan to a real estate investor um, like mortgages you're looking at sixes and sevens problem with real estate prices not declining last year is say you entered last year with the, the term, the equivalent of yield in real estate it is basically called cap rate, a cap rate of 4% or a yield of 4%. Um, a year ago, you buy a property that's cash flowing at 4%, you finance it at 3% to put some leverage on it to, to juice up your return a little bit. So your yield was in excess of your, your, your cost of capital, um, your finance rate at 3%. Now when financing rates are at six or seven, and the yield's still four because the price hasn't changed. Leverage doesn't work, and real estate is almost all about leverage. Uh, that's the beauty of real estate as an investor. You you put you know half down or less, and you put leverage, and you, you pay down principal and income over time, and you build equity. And in, in addition to getting cash flow, and when when we're looking at rates around six or seven percent, and cap rates are only at four, the math doesn't work so uh, we do have some concerns that there needs to be a price adjustment there yields going up in real estate means price going down we've uh, significantly trimmed our exposure to that market that i'm speaking about which is really core real estate so we don't have much exposure there but within the private markets that's the one that we're most concerned about
0: okay but everything else you you feel like is tracking according to expectations and what you consider the opportunity set in private markets hasn't really been altered because of 2022. No. Great. Any other thoughts on your mind, Bob, as we look at where the markets are on this February 1st? The only other thing you you mentioned to me, we had a listener question about dividends. We did have a listener question about dividends. And as a reminder, We would love to answer any questions that you have in future episodes. And if you do have questions, please email them to wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net. And we did have a question uh, that came in the other day about why would you or would you not target a high dividend investing strategy in your portfolio?
1: Yeah, so it's a good question. When you look at corporate governance, which is basically companies looking at what to do with capital, um, paying out a dividend is an option. Another thing that companies can do um, with profits is buy back shares. So if you just put those two examples in isolation next to each other and say, okay, a company has profits. With some of the profits, would you rather them issue a dividend or buy back shares? Personally, I'd rather them buy back shares because when they buy back shares, there's fewer shares outstanding. You, So you as a shareholder who's being passive, you, you now own more of the company. They're making shares disappear. Your ownership of the company grows, your ownership of profits grow. And what's nice about that is it's a non-taxable event. When they buy back shares, it doesn't um, you know, lead to a tax consequence for you. When they pay a dividend, you have to pay taxes on the dividend if it's held in a taxable account. So dividends are tax inefficient. Um, it's one of the reasons why Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway doesn't pay cash dividends so it um but on the flip side it is nice to see that you know they're returning some um, money to um, end investors but the way we look at it is uh, not measuring it based on dividend payout or dividends but just profits um, and we look at companies that are profitable and that gets to be in value investors so companies can do different things with their profits um, so measuring uh, a company based on its profits and balance sheet, so seeing good book value, those are areas that that we'd prefer rather than focusing on a forced dividend payout policy.
0: So that gets to my follow-up question that I was going to ask you, and I'm still going to ask you, because I think I am more of a fan of dividend investing than than you are. And what you're basically saying is what makes a good company that's able to pay a dividend, or I think this is what you're basically saying, what makes a good company that's able to pay a sustainable dividend and not a forced high dividend because its investors are expecting it, is that it's profitable, has strong cash flow, it's financially healthy, and they have excess capital to return to investors. And they've just chosen to return it to investors in the way of a dividend. So you can get the attributes of Dividend paying stocks or quality dividend paying stocks in other ways without purely locking into, you know, only looking at those names. That's right. Yeah. And then I think why the question comes up with a lot of investors is because you talked about the inefficiency of distributing a dividend and the tax inefficiency of distributing a dividend. But a lot of times the question does come from people who are already making portfolio withdrawals and so you know in essence they're saying throw out the yield from the portfolio give it you know to me and my account through dividend paying stocks and then there's less transactions that you'll have to make to free up cash you know monthly when i need it is there anything to that in in your mind just basically focusing a little bit more on income it 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 does
1: it it gets to um building a You can build a portfolio to generate income today, or you can build a portfolio to deliver the highest total return, and then we'll sell and find ways to get you the cash. And we do prefer the total return path. Um, So if you look at the portfolio, um, you'd get in maybe even a company names, like looking at dividend. If if you look at a fund that that targets dividends, uh, some of the underlying companies that you'll see that have high dividend payouts, like Comcast, um you have you know telephone um uh, companies um cable companies utilities and um, a lot of people are cutting the cord you know getting rid of their cable so that might get you a good dividend today but does that make it a good investment for the next 10 years and I wouldn't want to be um you know building a portfolio in these kind of old dying companies that yes still have cash today but what are they going to look like in five years and 10 years? And over time, you might get a subpar return, uh, but you'll get a good get dividend in year one. So it, it's more, um, you know, you look at Google, who's also buying back stock and growing. And, um, you know, maybe someone's cutting their Comcast cord to go to YouTube TV. Um, but frankly, you own both of them um, rather than just go all in one.
0: So you're still talking about essentially not reducing your opportunity set and being dogmatic in terms of the types of stocks that, that you're looking for. Perfect. And, and that if you do that, the expectation, at least under our philosophy, is that you'll have a higher expected return. And that's ultimately what matters in in the portfolio. Yes. Nice. All right. So, Bob, I appreciate that. You jumped the gun on asking the question. I was going to ask you one more thing, because I know how you love some of these Fake signals, real signals that come from the market. You mentioned the Super Bowl effect once on our podcast. So I wanted to ask you about one that I saw the other day, and it was basically when the S&P is up during the Santa Claus rally, so during the end of the year, and then for the first five days of the year, and in January, the market historically does very well, and it's up 90% of the time in that calendar year that started with the January. Does that matter to you?
1: One of the things that's silly with some of those stats <laughs> um, is w- when you're measuring for a year and you say you're up in January. Well, of course you have a high, you're gonna you have a higher likelihood of of having a good year because you're including January in the calculation. I'd be interested in what that ninety percent number would be if it's a starting point of February first, because if it's like you, you you start off the year up six percent, then yeah, you're probably on track for an above average year. But you, you can't get that. 6% back today. Um, so I, I don't put too much in that. There's momentum is, is, does kind of have some research that that proves that, um, you know, winners keep winning. And,
0: yeah. Oh, I, Bob, don't, I don't worry. Know. I was worried that you change your stripes on me and say, no, that sounds very reasonable. I, I kind of like that. I wish I had seen that myself. Anytime you see these markets are up most of the time type stats or what, they're because the market historically is up. You know, the, every month on average, you have more than a 50% chance, I believe, of being up every year. You have, you know, a high likelihood of of being up. I don't know what they do around what the markets do around the holidays. But, you know, you put a bunch of positive things together and you say it tends to lead to positive years in the market. It's like, yeah, that's because the market's trend line is up. Yeah. Anyway, thought you'd have fun with that one. Thank you, uh, Bob. I really appreciate your insight today. Uh, I know the markets have been keeping you busy. We made a lot of portfolio changes in December to prepare ourselves for this higher yielding environment. And I appreciate your thoughts on stocks, bonds, the private markets, what the Fed is doing. And I'm sure our listeners are getting a lot out of it. Thanks, Sammy. Thank you, Bob. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamas. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services LLC, located in the Greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.